0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Welcome. Thanks for tuning in for this Thursday edition of Washington Watch. Coming up, Senate Democrat Leader Chuck Schumer failed to advance his Partisan Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act. Today we will have a bill before us, ostensibly titled and ostensibly about the subject
2: of domestic terrorism, But this bill would be more accurately called the Democrat plan to brand and insult our police and soldiers as white supremacists and neo-Nazis.
1: That was Kentucky Senator Rand Paul prior to today's vote. We'll dig a little deeper into both the vote outcome and the bill with FRC Director of Federal Affairs Mary Beth Waddell. And what is really behind the Democrats' push to expand government power domestically? North Carolina Congressman Dan Bishop, a member of the House Judiciary Committee who opposed the terrorism bill, joins me in just a moment. And sadly, in the wake of the Texas school shooting, the religious hostility of the left is once again on full display. These
3: families, my colleagues, don't want thoughts and prayers. They want their elected leaders to respond to their suffering.
1: That was Democrat Senate leader Chuck Schumer now, anticipating the worn-out calls for gun control, Texas Governor Greg, Greg Abbott said this yesterday.
4: I know people like to try to oversimplify this. Uh, let's talk about some real facts, and and that is, there are quote real gun laws in Chicago. There are quote real gun laws in New York. There are real. Gun laws in California. I hate to say this, but there are more people who were shot every weekend in Chicago than there are in schools in Texas. And we need to realize that, that people who think that, well, maybe if we could just implement tougher gun laws, it's going to solve it. Chicago and LA and New York disprove
1: that thesis. So what are the real facts? We'll get them from John Lott, President, Crime Prevention Research Center. And as we discussed yesterday, our society is filling the minds of children with all types of violence and immorality. And then, you know, we're shocked when they engage in violent and immoral acts. You know, we must address the moral void in our nation. But in the meantime, We can take practical steps to make sure that our schools are safer. How do we do that? Well, Josiah O'Neill, a law enforcement officer and security consultant in Southern California, joins me for that conversation. And historically, in times of tragedy, Americans looked to the pulpit for answers. They sought meaning and understanding from the Bible. Now, we know that the number of Americans that are looking to pastors for answers is declining. But a new survey from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University shows fewer pulpits actually believe the Bible has the answers. So could that be a factor in why people are not looking to the church? We're going to talk about that with George Barna. He's the director of research at ACU and a senior fellow for the Center for Biblical Worldview here at FRC. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you. I encourage you to check it out and Invite your friends to look at it as well. Today's word comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 18, verse 14. It reads as follows. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Now You have to ask the question, why did Saul, who held the position of king, fear David? Because David held the position of power. Well, how did David have the power? It's because of his posture of humility and obedience before God. As God promised the children of Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 25, he said, if they would choose to obey and fear him, this is his promise. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread. We see that played out in the life of David. To find out more about the reading plan, go to frc.org slash Bible. As we mentioned, our nation has experienced two horrific tragedies this month that deeply sadden all of us. Of course, this has also led to calls for action, and today a Democrat-backed bill on domestic terrorism aimed at responding to the Buffalo mass shooting stalled in the Senate with no Republican senator supporting it. Of course, you have to ask the question why. Joining me now to uh, give us the details on this vote today and to discuss uh, the key issues of opposition from Republicans is Mary Beth Waldell, Director of Federal Affairs here at FRC. Mary Beth, welcome back to Washington Watch.
5: Great to be back with you, Tony. Thank you.
1: So this, uh, as I understand, this vote was 47-47. It failed, did not get a single Republican vote. What were the main issues of opposition from Republicans?
5: That is correct. This bill didn't receive any Republican support in the Senate. And that's because this bill um, could really be open to abuse. You know, you heard the point from Senator Rand Paul, uh, who pointed out that it creates an interagency task force to analyze and combat white supremacists and neo-Nazi infiltration of uniformed services and federal law enforcement agencies, which could be used to really improperly target, you know, those in our military and those in law enforcement. Um, It really... Uh, doubles down and creates uh, more infrastructure within the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, and the FBI uh, to monitor, analyze, investigate, prosecute domestic terrorism, and then specifically assigns a special agent or hate crime liaison in every single field office of the FBI to investigate hate crimes with the nexus to domestic terrorism. So you have a duplication of things that we already have to properly investigate crime and where it's ripe for abuse.
1: Now, Mary Beth, is, is it a stretch to say that this definition, this was part of the concerns uh, that I heard, is that this, uh, the, the definition of domestic terrorist was somewhat elastic and uh, it was, uh, there was concern that it could be used or misused?
5: Oh, absolutely. You know, you have uh, this elaboration on the hate crimes network and sort of this connection between hate crimes and domestic terrorism. And we've seen where they've tried to put this domestic terrorist label um, on parents who just care about their children, you know, and speak up in school boards uh, meetings to air their concerns of their safety and what their, their kids' safety and what their children are being taught and indoctrinated with in schools. And you've seen action taken uh, to presumably call these folks domestic terrorists. Um, and that's not right, not what our domestic terrorist statutes should be focused on.
1: All right, Mary Beth Waddell, thanks so much for uh, joining us today.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Joining us now to uh, look at whether or not this issue is gone or the Democrats will try to make a campaign election year issue out of this is North Carolina Congressman Dan Bishop. He represents the uh, Ninth Congressional District of North Carolina. He is a member of the House Judiciary Committee who opposed this bill very vocally in the House. Uh, Congressman uh, Dan Bishop, welcome back to the program.
2: Thank you, Tony. I'm delighted to see you.
1: Let me ask you this question. Um, you know, the Chuck Schumer knew he did not have the votes. He had to have 60 votes to pass this. He, he couldn't do it. Is this all about uh, showmanship, uh, trying to show or say that uh, present the Democrats as being tough on crime?
2: Well, I think maybe, Tony, there's an objective beyond uh, looking tough on crime. The Democrats want to stigmatize Republicans as domestic terrorists, terrorists. And that's what it, it, this is. This represents. And the same thing occurred in the House and House Judiciary Committee when the bill was marked up there. There is a, a, a desire to conflate white supremacist terrorists in particular, with the political opposition of the Democrats. It is a remarkable in a series or in a, in a Congress in which um, institutional norms have been trampled by Democrats without restraint. This is a new low, in my judgment, where if you go back to 9-11 and remember back uh, then, Tony, we were we were all together as Americans about the threat that terrorism represented to our society and to combating it. Uh, Democrats actually have come to the point where they want to assail their, their, their political enemies with the label of terrorist. And it is extreme, it, besides being... Um, you know, just an um, unethical thing to do. It is dangerous for our country and our ability to combat terrorism on a unified
1: front. I would think that this would further polarize our country when you're going to use the levers and the power of government to go after your political opponents, labeling them the the same thing as someone that was involved in activities like al-Qaeda or ISIS and we're talking about, and, and this is not a stretch. Okay, this is not a stretch, and I think you pointed this out in committee that we're talking about parents who have gone to school board meetings, upset over what their children are being indoctrinated with, being labeled as domestic terrorist.
2: Right. Not only is it not a threat, there's evidence that it's occurred. We we know that uh, from uh, Ranking Member Jim Jordan on the committee I serve on, that uh, that there have been whistleblowers who have emerged who said that. Indeed, because the attorney general, in, a, in a, uh, a situation that the White House concocted where they went out and recruited the National School Boards Association to send this letter leading to the attorney general's memo uh, suggesting that parents going to school board meetings were dangerous, you know, uh, the source of dangerous threats, then they got the FBI counterterrorism division involved and the attorney general said, Let's see meetings in every judicial district. They ultimately went out. We have three separate reports where FBI agents went out to interrogate parents about their activism before school boards. So it's not a a theoretical thing, Tony. We've seen it activated this way, the use of the uh, Patriot Act counterterrorism mechanisms. And yes, the, the Democrats want to codify or place those practices in law. And as you said, even their definition of what domestic terrorism constitutes is is uh, fuzzy, and they even have some mixed-up language in the bill about domestic terrorism activity that's not quite the same thing, apparently, as domestic terrorism. It's a terrible piece of legislation and a worse piece of statesmanship.
1: You know, Dan, you and I have spent a lot of time talking to each other Privately. And, and I know you are a follower of Christ, uh, as I am. And, and we know that we have to give an account beyond the voters, beyond our constituents. We give an account to God for what we say and what we advocate for. And so everything I say in this program, I, I, I'm very measured about it because yes, you I know are. that I give an account for that. But I see this and you see this and I'm, I'm concerned, just like the police reform bill, that they couldn't get through the Senate, that the president is going to do something by executive order on this this is all designed to silence people like us. That's how I see it. Is, is that right or wrong?
2: No, I think you're absolutely right. Look, Tony, if, if domestic terrorism were uh, if the, were correctly focused upon and uh, the, the right things were being done, that bill would be bipartisan, overwhelmingly. Uh, and so th- this is how you know. I mean, it's just absurd to suggest that well, Republicans are soft on domestic terrorism or any form of terrorism. They just they they don't want to reach a constructive result to attack right. a specific problem. And if that's so, then indeed, what is the what is the objective? It is it is the most grotesque form of stigmatization, stigmatizing your political opponent. And when and, and when we talk about the domestic terrorism with the FBI. And the parents at school boards, they're they're doing the same thing. It's a politicization of the law enforcement uh, mechanisms of the country. And it's a very, as you say, I don't seek to exaggerate either. It is an extremely dangerous place for our country to be. Yes, it is. Any political party would do that.
1: Yep, Uh, you're absolutely right. Dan Bishop, we're out of time. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Always great to see you, my friend. Thank you, Tony. Likewise. Folks, stick with us. We're coming back with more on the other side of the break.
6: family research council on an exciting two-year journey through the bible frc's stand on the word bible reading plan helps you to dive deeper into the nature of god and how his word speaks into the cultural issues of the day god has given us the bible as a way to understand the world by studying the bible we can see god's plan unfold throughout the past and be encouraged by how the truth of scripture is still relevant in our current day and will be into the future the Stand on the Word reading plan engagingly and thoughtfully takes you through the daily scripture to help you stay grounded in God's truth. You can start this reading plan with Family Research Council today. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your family and friends. Visit frc.org Bible to begin this journey through the Bible today.
7: Although most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, studies show that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. That is why Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview was created. The center serves to help Christians understand the importance of Scripture, why it must be authoritative, and how it can equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC Center for Biblical Worldview provide resources to help prepare believers to give a scriptural answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access these free resources at FRC.org worldview. See the center's latest blogs, op-eds, and publications by signing up for the newsletter at FRC.org worldview
0: email. To be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications.
1: This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Good to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Um, you know, just to, to kind of tag on to what I was saying with uh, Congressman Bishop, uh, you know, I'm very measured in how I describe these things, and, and I do know a little bit about uh, terrorism. I served; uh, I was with the State Department as a contractor for about five years, working in anti-terrorism. I spent ten years on the police uh, on the street as a police officer, so I know I, I know what I'm talking about when I see these things, and and I'm very concerned. as as the congressman said, as we politicize domestic terrorism to use it as a weapon, as a tool to go after political opponents, it not only endangers our country from a standpoint of not being able to discern the real threats, but it also continues to increase the polarization in our country and keeps us from reaching solutions. And it's just very, very dangerous when you begin to uh, weaponize the government to go after your political opponents, and that's exactly what I see happening here. All right, elementary schools uh, this week after this uh, the shooting, the immediate cry was to uh, to do something, particularly something involving gun control. And 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 every time this happens, we get the same thing, and 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 the you know the, this sh- demand for gun control, the whole thing can be deafening, but. If the proposal for more gun control laws, which President Biden and the Democrats are demanding, actually worked, wouldn't gun violence be solved in places like New York City, Chicago, and even in Washington, D.C.? Well, joining now to discuss this is John Lott. He's the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. John, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, so John, let me ask you this. Is, the, is there a positive cor- correlation between strict gun laws in the absence of gun violence, or is it the opposite, which the cities that have the strictest gun laws being among the jurisdictions with the highest rates of gun violence, which is it? Well, uh, what you
8: find is that when places adopt stricter gun control laws, there tends to be an increase in violent crime. Uh, I'll give you a, a simple example. Every place in the world that's banned either all guns or all handguns, has seen an increase in murder. I mean, you think out of randomness, you'd get at least one time where it went down or at least stayed the same, and yet every single time it's gone up, it's just not places like Washington, D.C. or Chicago, which have had handgun bans. You know, gun control advocates will say, look, um, if uh, if you, you have to ban guns every place because if you just ban it in one city or so it won't work, because they'll get guns from other places. Of course, they really don't explain, you know, it would have been nice if they'd kind of let us in on the secret before when they were pushing this, that it wasn't going to work. But, uh, you know, you, you, as I say, you think you at least find one place. And what happens is, is that when you have these types of laws, you run the risk that it's primarily law-abiding good citizens who obey them and not the criminals. And to the extent that you disarm law-abiding citizens relative to criminals, you're actually going to make it easier for criminals
1: to go and commit crimes. That's the same type of—go ahead. That makes perfect sense. I mean, if you can't—who are you going to pick on? Someone who can defend themselves or someone who is a soft target that cannot defend themselves? Right. Well, I
8: mean, we can also see that in terms of these gun-free zones that we have. Uh, Over 94 percent of the successful mass public shootings that have occurred in the United States since 1950— have taken place in areas where citizens weren't allowed to be able to go and have guns. I mean, if you read the manifesto from the Buffalo shooter um, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, he talks about his ideal target uh, being a place where people aren't allowed to have uh, concealed handguns. When I mean, you mentioned that you were a police officer. Uh, police, if you put one police officer in a place who's in uniform, Uh, and he's trying to guard against a potential mass public shooting, he has a very difficult task. Uh, Being in uniform, and if he's believed to be the only person there who has a gun, who do you think an attacker is going to attack first? He's going to attack the person in uniform there, because he knows that once he kills that individual there, he's going to have free reign uh, to go after other people. And if you're guarding a place like a school or someplace else, you know, hour after hour, day after day, week after week. You know, it's hard to, you know, be incredibly vigilant all the time. And besides, you don't have eyes in the back of your head uh, there. Uh, you know, this Buffalo shooter had cased the grocery store beforehand. He knew that there was one uh, armed guard that was there who was in uniform. He knew where the, the guard would be stationed. Uh, You know, so it's not too surprising that he's the first person that he would take out in something like this. The advantage that you have with concealed carry is that you take away those tactical advantages that the attacker has. Because what happens is is that if he, let's say, goes after the uniformed uh, officer or guard there, he reveals his position. And he has to worry that somebody behind him or to the side, somebody who he wasn't able to identify as having a gun, is going to be able to go and stop
1: them at that point.
8: And so it actually makes it safer for the officer or the
1: guard that's going to be there. People don't realize that the police are only about 1% of the population. It's kind of hard for 1% to protect the other 99%. It's Um, less than 1%. I want. Yeah, this page is declining as more and more are kind of driven from law enforcement because of this whole hostility we've seen from the left toward law enforcement. But I want to very quickly, we're almost out of time. Your research has found that 92 percent violent crimes do not involve guns. Quickly, tell us about that, because I think that's very significant.
8: Right. Well, I guess I'm given how much I'm in this, I'm kind of surprised that other people don't realize that. But yeah. Over 92% of violent crimes does not involve guns in any way. We recently just did a survey, hired McLaughlin and Associates. The average likely voter out there thinks that over, slightly over 46% of violent crime involves guns. And, you know, that's not really too surprising, given that uh, Biden uh, and many Democrats focus on a gun-only policy. I mean, Biden's given four addresses on violent crime. Uh, He's mentioned police four times, and when he mentions police, it's in terms of police enforcing gun control laws. He hasn't mentioned anything about prosecutors not prosecuting violent criminals. He hasn't mentioned anything about, uh, you know, cuts in police budgets or restrictions on what police can do or large numbers of inmates being released from jails or other things. But look, the bottom line is... You fight gun violence in the same way that you fight any other type of violent crime. You have to make it risky for criminals to go and commit crimes. And you right. make that with higher arrest rates, higher conviction rates, longer prison sentences.
1: Yeah. Uh, John, we're, we're up against a break, but uh, fascinating conversation. I'm going to get you back on again, and we're going we're gonna to continue this conversation. Thanks so much for being with us. Folks, stick with us. We're coming back on the other side of this break with more washington watch
7: most of us have at least one friend or family member who is pro-choice or have engaged with someone who doesn't share our pro-life views as christians we are called to defend the weak and to speak truth in love when we advocate for the unborn we must do so in a way that is both honest and loving at family research council we recognize the inherent dignity of every human life from conception until natural death The value of human life is not conditional upon its usefulness to others or an arbitrary evaluation of a person's quality of life. Rather, the value of human life is unconditional because God, the author of life, has created all humans in his image. FRC's Center for Human Dignity exists to give a voice to the voiceless by helping others speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Access our free resources at frc.org/life so that you can address abortion, human trafficking, pornography,
9: and more. Attention university students. Do you feel called to promote faith, family, and freedom in public policy and the culture? Are you hoping to grow in Christian leadership? Then join Family Research Council for an unforgettable internship. FRC's 12-15 to week internship program is designed to educate university students who are passionate about public service and who believe that a biblical worldview is necessary for government to serve the people and for culture to thrive. As an intern, you work alongside FRC's experts who will invest in your personal and professional development as you prepare to make a kingdom impact in the world. This paid internship offers free housing in DC, allowing you to experience community with other faithful conservatives in the nation's capital. For more information and to apply, visit frc.org/internships. That's frc.org/internships.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. The website is TonyPerkins.com. So glad that you are with us. The tragedy at Robb Elementary School in Texas has left many searching for answers. Parents in particular may wonder if their children's schools and communities are taking necessary precautions uh, in identifying these threats and preventing situations from escalating to what we saw this week. Now, the clamor we hear from many political leaders, including the president, is that we need more gun control. But we have laws that say you can't take guns onto school property. So it's not like criminals are going to obey laws restricting guns. We've got to get beyond that one talking point and talk about, number one, how do we harden some of these targets? How do we make it so that innocent people can defend themselves against criminals? Well, joining me now to discuss some practical steps that schools can take to protect students and staff is Josiah O'Neill. He is a deputy sheriff in Southern California. He has actually been involved in federal law enforcement as well, previously working at uh, the State Department. Josiah, welcome back to uh, Washington Watch.
10: Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me.
1: So, um, you know, we hear a lot of this about uh, about gun control. And and that seems to be the only thing we hear from uh, certainly those in power at present. But are there not some practical steps? I mean, as I mentioned, you know, school zones, you can't take a gun into school zones, which actually make them a more vulnerable target. And criminals have said that because they know they're not going to face resistance. So just controlling guns is not the answer in my view. But you tell me as a uh, as one who is actively involved in law enforcement right now.
10: No, you're absolutely correct. In fact, guns have been around for hundreds of years, and um, it's pretty obvious that there's been a moral change in our culture. Now, there are two ways of looking at this. One, to address, it, to address the problem for what it really is, that the moral depravity and change in our society has led to more and more violent occasions, and we could talk about that all day. But I do want to focus, as you mentioned, on seeing that that is a reality. What can we do? And fortunately, there's no need to reinvent the wheel here. Uh, we've been involved in securing facilities, government facilities and schools for many years. The bottom line is schools just aren't doing enough right now, and we can do better. So specifically, the State Department has a program to enhance the safety and security of schools uh, overseas, which I was directly involved with. And, and I can tell you right now that a lot of what we implemented overseas is not being done here, and, and we can do better there.
1: Well, one of the one of the ideas that has been out there, in fact, some states have uh, embraced it. And and that is to allow um, qualified individuals to carry concealed on school campuses. And as I said, you know, you you drive through a school zone, you're not supposed to have a weapon. If you live near a school zone, you happen to fall into it. That's been an issue for some people. But if you are qualified and you have the background check, why not allow uh, you know, certain teachers, if they want to, or administrators to carry on school property?
10: Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing better than a good guy with a gun to stop a bad guy with one. And as you pointed out, you mentioned the concept of a soft target or hard target. That's very, very important because if you didn't know, I have a security consulting company. We're majorly focusing on this right now. O'Neill Security Group, we actually professionalize security operations at organizations that previously just aren't meeting the mark. And it's it's a whole litany, um, an approach to security that needs to be happening in our schools. One is certainly allowing people to defend themselves. Right. Um, I've never met a criminal, whether in, in my local law enforcement or federal work, that respected the laws uh, by definition. Right. Criminals don't. So it, there's, there's a variety of things. One, which is the, the last line, uh, being able to defend yourself and having armed personnel at schools. That's, that's a given. But you also have things like access control, Mylar screens on windows, uh, egress and entry points, all basic uh, steps that we can take to improve security, as well as things like OSINT, an acronym just meaning open source intelligence, which is widely available on social media, just forward-looking in defense of our children. Um, And what you find often is that the government really isn't that good at anything they do. So I believe that there probably needs to be some grants and some outreach to companies that do this um, and uh, let us step in to do a little more for our kids.
1: Yeah, I mean, probably when you were in elementary schools. When I worked with the State Department, and uh, and and we did uh, we didn't do schools. We did vital installations uh, that were strategic sites, and we you wanted to make sure you had three levels of security, deterrence, and of course, as you said, the uh, you know having armed resistance is the last uh, measure of uh, of security. So there's many things we could do: fences, uh, cameras, uh, all types of steps that could be taken. And and given the technology we have today, it just seems like we could do so much better, but we get stuck on this one debate over gun control as if that is the only thing.
10: Well, not to take away from the horrific tragedy, but it's 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 quite ironic to see the left virtue signaling about gun control every time we have innocents suffering. Um, it's, it's outrageous. In fact, uh, the, the numbers of death in Chicago, for example, are staggering. Over 2,400 in the first six months right. of the year dead due to gun violence. And I don't really hear much about that until
1: the midterm elections. And
10: all of a sudden, right. we see this all over we the were, news.
1: We were just talking about the ineffective nature of uh, these laws. Because as you said, criminals don't obey laws. I never met a criminal who said, you know, who, who obeyed the laws. If he were, if he obeyed them, he wouldn't have been a criminal. I wouldn't have to arrest him. Uh, Josiah, great to talk with you. Great to see you again. Thanks so much for uh, joining us this afternoon.
10: Thanks for having me, Tony. Appreciate it.
1: Josiah O'Neill. All right, we're going to continue our conversation. On the other side of the break, we're going to be joined by George Barna. He joins me to discuss his latest research on the worldview of pastors. Now, this has uh, significant implications with what we're talking about because If the schools aren't doing it, if the culture isn't doing it, and parents aren't really doing it, we need the churches and we need the pastors to lead the way. We'll talk about that next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away.
9: Religious liberty is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's own choosing and to live in accordance with those beliefs. It is an inherent human right. Therefore, Family Research Council's Center for Religious Liberty strives to advance religious liberty for all people of all faiths. Advocates for strong religious liberty protections are often labeled bigots. But for those familiar with the history of religious liberty in the United States, until recently, it was embraced by a majority of Americans. In fact, religious liberty has historically had bipartisan support. Today, efforts to restrict this freedom have become increasingly common. Therefore, Christians need to articulate with greater clarity why we support religious liberty and why all people are served when religious liberty thrives. Access the Center for Religious Liberty's free resources to learn more at frc.org religious-liberty.
0: In today's culture, there are few examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need a model of leadership, strength, courage, and sacrificial love that they can look to. But where can they find it? Try our Stand Courageous Men's Ministry. We seek to help men develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. We invite you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who struggle with the same issues you do. And we'll invest in unpacking our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can have the generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at standcourageous.com.
6: At Family Research Council, we want to be able to keep you informed on our latest resources and events. Due to the growing threat of tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've created a tech subscription platform. So that we can stay connected. So if we get canceled, you can continue to receive updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742.
1: This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. Good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Uh, be sure and point your friends to the website. They can watch all of the uh, archived editions of Washington Watch, watch right there at TonyPerkins.com. All right, historically, in times of tragedy, Americans looked to the pulpit for answers. They sought meaning and understanding from the Bible. Now we know that the number of Americans that are looking to pastors for answers is declining. But a new survey by the Cultural Research Center in Arizona Christian University shows fewer pulpits believe the Bible actually has the answers. Now, could that be a factor in why people are not looking to the church for answers? Well, the director of the research at ACU's Cultural Research Center and a a senior fellow here at the Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview is George Barna, and he is here to shed some light on this new polling. George, welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to be back with you, Tony. Thanks. Now, uh, your research, this latest research, shows that, it, I mean, it's it's really kind of stunning. 37% of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview. I mean, how do you teach the Bible if you don't really Have a biblical worldview is what I have to ask. Well, you're making an assumption,
3: of course, which is that in our churches, we're teaching the Bible. Clearly we're not. Uh, I think one of the things that this survey brings out to the fore is the fact that while we as the church have been called to transform the culture, American culture is doing more transforming of the American church. So it's hopefully gonna be seen as a wake up call that a lot of pastors have to recognize and a lot of their congregants have to recognize about their churches that we're really not being the kind of light in the darkness that Christ has called us to be
1: now there there is now this is overall of Christian pastors, but when you begin to break it down according to different types of churches You know, non denominational, independent, uh, the number, uh, you know, bumps up to 57%. uh, And then uh, I was, I don't know if I should say I'm encouraged, but I guess relatively speaking, I look at the Southern Baptist, and uh, they are about 78% of those pastors have a biblical worldview. So that, Again, I'm not saying that that's great, but relatively speaking, it's better than some of the other denominations, especially when you look at the mainline denominations. It appears that they've almost completely left the Bible in terms of its application to the world in which we live.
3: Yeah, and Tony, you know, we broke this down in a lot of different ways. One way we looked at it was by the type of pastor. So we found, for instance, 41 percent of senior pastors have a biblical worldview that drops to just 28% among associate or assistant pastors. That's important because, of course, they're the future senior pastors of tens of thousands of churches across the country. So we're looking at a reduction in the future if that trend holds to be true. We can look at teaching pastors as yet a different category. We found that only 13% of our teaching pastors have a biblical worldview, you have to ask the question, well, then what is it you're teaching? And right. Uh, right. of course, you you typically only find teaching pastors in large churches. Uh, we can look at the one that, that troubles me the most, which is children's and youth pastors where only 12% have a biblical worldview. So that means that seven out of every eight of the pastors who are working with children do not have a biblical worldview, and that troubles me so much because it's between the ages of 15 to 18 months and 13 years of age that a person develops their worldview that they're going to carry with them for the rest of their life. So we know, as as you alluded to earlier, that uh, parents, by and large, are not helping to shape uh, the biblical worldview of their children, and now we see that their children's and, and uh, youth pastors aren't either.
1: All right, let me, uh, George, I, I, I love to jump into this and look at this data. You know that because you and I have a lot of conversations about it, but sometimes I get ahead of myself. I, I want to step back for just a moment for the benefit of those who may be listening. Uh, for the first time, having, we're having this conversation, of biblical worldview. What does that mean? What does it mean? I know, and I know there's like a 54 questions that you asked to define this, but generally speaking, define biblical worldview. Everybody makes
3: decisions all the time, Tony, and we have to make those decisions on the basis of something. And so we make those choices on the basis of our worldview, which essentially is the intellectual, emotional, and spiritual filter that we have that enables us to make sense of the world around us and our place within it. So our worldview is the thing that helps us to determine right from wrong, good from bad, appropriate from inappropriate. It helps us to determine what kind of a person we want to be, how we want to be seen by others, what kind of reputation we want to have, what kind of a legacy we want to leave, what kind of an impact we want to have on the lives of others around us. Our worldview is the thing that determines all of those choices that we make. Everybody has a worldview. It develops very young. We refine it during our teens and 20s but it rarely changes after, let's say, our early to mid-20s. We carry it with us the rest of our life.
1: So a a couple of important factors. You just said that everyone has one. You may not recognize what it is, but you have one, and that it's very important that you have the right worldview, but it's also important, the first step would be knowing what kind of worldview you have, because that's how you're going to make decisions, life, uh, you know, important life decisions. And Central to a biblical worldview is the Bible. That's why it's called a biblical worldview. You you have to be in the word, you have to know the word. And for most people that starts with someone who is teaching the word to them, helping them understand it. So it goes back to the pastor, it goes back to that youth leader, it goes back to that Sunday school teacher. So if we have a deficit of worldview, biblical worldview in the church, I mean that does not speak well for Christian homes because What is going to be their source? Biblically, of course, as you know, it's
3: the parents who have the primary responsibility of shaping the worldview of their children. But it's the community of faith that has the responsibility of helping to equip and to support those parents in the process of developing that worldview. So when you have a community of faith that, Maybe it doesn't really believe in the Bible. Maybe it doesn't consistently teach biblical truth. Maybe it doesn't hold people accountable for how they're living. Because keep in mind also something else about a biblical worldview. It sounds like it's all beliefs, but it's not. It's a combination of beliefs and behavior because you do what you believe. And so your worldview really has to shape your behavior as well as what you, what you think about, what you believe to be true. So, yeah, that community of faith plays an absolutely critical role in this. And one of the things that we've learned over the last few years and all the research we're doing, now I understand it better now that we have this research in hand, is that those people who have a biblical worldview, it has been largely shaped through the coaching or mentoring of another individual who has that biblical worldview And is willing to come alongside them and not only teach it to them, but also model it for them and help them to be accountable for the choices that they're making.
1: Again, you and I have had many conversations about this because we're both passionate about this issue. And this is why we have the Center for Biblical Worldview at FRC. And, folks, we've got resources available at FRC.org in our Center for Biblical Worldview, taking these issues and looking at them from a biblical perspective, breaking them down according to Scripture. But, George, uh, to to your point, I think at the tip of the spear is the parents because the Scripture in Deuteronomy Uh, Chapter six, they're the ones instructed to teach the children. Of course, we've got to break this cycle because we have this, you know, this declining uh, biblical worldview among the population, among those in in the church. So we've got to break that cycle. I think parents are the best way to do it, but we've got to have at the same time churches reinforcing and actually equipping the parents to be able to do this at that very critical age, as you pointed out, between 15, 18 months and 13 years.
3: And in addition to that, we've also got to think about the environments in which we're placing our children. So they're going to spend a lot of time in school. And we have to ask the question, are the public schools the best place to not only inculcate that worldview, but but to nurture it, a biblical worldview? Yes, the, the public schools will teach a worldview. But you've got to take a close look at what worldview are they going to teach? Is it what we want our children consistently exposed to? And we've got to be looking at the arts and entertainment media that we allow our children to be exposed to. Because we know that of everything that, that I've been studying, it's the arts and entertainment media that are having the single most dramatic impact on the worldview development of our children.
1: And, and again, who, and it goes back to the parents. In terms of being the gatekeepers of what they let into their to their homes, um, I, I, I want to ask you this question, because if we have it, you know 37 percent of all Christian pastors, 57 percent of non-denominational independent, 51 percent of evangelical Protestant, charismatic. Pentecostals, 37 percent. Mainline Protestant, 32 percent. Holiness, 28 percent. Traditional black Protestant, 9 percent. Roman Catholic, 6 percent. Those are the worldview numbers. How do you know if you're in a church as to whether or not they, the pastor, has a biblical worldview and he is teaching that to you and to your family? What are the best ways to detect that?
3: Yeah, I think that's really the $64,000 question, Tony. No, because what we're talking about now is that if you're going to be a Christian, you need to be an informed consumer of uh, biblical faith. And so if you're going to go to a church, it's incumbent upon you to do your homework to figure out, is this a church that not only believes the Bible and and not just talks about it, but really is living it, really is being held accountable for that. And so one of the things that I've been suggesting to people is that they take a look at what I've been referring to as the seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview, that you sit back and you evaluate the teaching that's being given from the pulpit. And just as importantly, if you have children, maybe more importantly, you go to those children's ministries and you evaluate what's being taught there. By talking with the pastors, by looking at the curriculum they use, by evaluating the homework that they give to your children or the take-home papers, all of these kinds of things will give you clues as to what is this church really about. Is it into entertainment? Is it just into numerical growth? Or is it really into biblical living? And so, you know, when I talk about the seven cornerstones, it's real fundamental Biblical Christianity. What do you believe about God? Do you believe that He is the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, uh, you know, uh, uh, just Creator of the universe, who's still involved in everyone's lives today, still involved in the workings of that entire universe? Uh, what do you believe about sin and salvation? Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that you were a sinner from birth? And that the only way that you can have a hope for eternal life is through Jesus Christ. And there only by acknowledging that you are a sinner in desperate need of Jesus Christ and him alone to save you. Uh, What do you believe about the Bible? Do you believe that it's a good religious book or do you believe that it's God's words for humanity? that he inspired people to write for our benefit, so that we can thrive, but that it is true, it is accurate, it is reliable, it is relevant. What do you believe about your purpose in life? Do you believe that you're on earth solely for the purpose of knowing, loving, and serving Christ with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul? These are the kinds of fundamental things that I'm saying. Go back and reevaluate the church. They're going to tell you that they, they love the Bible, that they teach the Bible. We can no longer assume that that's the case, no matter what church we're looking at. We're now in a place I, I, where
1: we have to be cautious. I, I, want to, I want to go to one book because we're almost out of time. You said biblical living, teaching biblical living. I think that's extremely important because I've been in churches that teach the Bible. They teach the Bible. They teach it accurately. They, they're, they're very um, you know, correct in their teaching of the Bible, but it's the application of, you know, they teach it from a, a historical and a biblical perspective, uh, but not in terms of its application to our lives. And that's where I think pulpits, teachers, need to be taking that next step. This is biblical truth, and this is how you apply it to your life.
3: And that's one of the things that we're even finding with parents, is that children aren't paying attention to their parents in terms of developing their worldview. Because they, uh, we've learned from this research that their parents are saying one thing and doing another. And so children are walking away from that saying, oh, my gosh, my parents are just as confused as I am. They don't have it figured out either. So I'm not going to pay attention to them. And they wind up getting their worldview from movies and television and video games and social media, all these other media places, because there tends to be a consistent message there. And so they're buying into that rather than going back to the source of all truth, which is God. And the source that he, therefore, gave to us to know that truth, which is the Bible,
1: yeah, I mean, this is fascinating stuff, George, uh, you and i I got to let everybody else go, and you and I can keep talking about this because uh I, I mean I just I, it first off we we 've got to clearly understand what the situation is if we 're going to fix it and, and I think our our nation is screaming out for truth and how to apply that truth, and I believe it begins with the Word of God, and it begins with the people. Of God. George, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Tony. Good to see you. And folks, thank you for joining us. And again, I encourage you to check out uh, the Center for Biblical Worldview at the Family Research Council and go to frc.org and uh, the Center for Biblical Worldview. Lots of resources there. And we've got more coming. Lots more coming. This is a big deal. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words. The Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action.